Before we look at our text this morning, let me say just a few words. Good to see Brother Paul Whalen here this morning, and uh, it's, it's always good. You know, COVID is just absolutely, we think about the economic uh, situation brought about by the pandemic and, and how it has affected people, but it, it has uh, so drastically affected churches much more than we'll ever know. And uh, it, it's just, uh, and yet at the same time, we know that God, even if God doesn't appoint something, God allows it. And he allows it for a good reason, because he doesn't make any mistakes. It's not like, whoops, I should have stopped that dead in his tracks, you know. And uh, as believers, we have the promise that it works together for good. And sometimes it takes something really bad in order for us to experience the good that God wants for us. I don't know but what uh, maybe the apostles might have thought about their situation when the Lord left. He's ascended back into heaven. There they are all alone. I wonder what it would be like to be in their shoes. I suspect, you know, that they had... A lot of questions. In fact, I know they did because they even asked some questions. And our text tells us they want to know what was going to happen in the future. They, they said, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, they looked at him as the Messiah naturally. And they thought, this is going to be great. He'll get us out from under the iron heel of the Roman government. We'll be free at last. Uh, boy, it's just going to be so wonderful whenever the king sets up his kingdom on earth. And so their focus is on, uh, on future things. And the Lord responded by saying, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. And his whole point was that instead of you thinking about the future, you need to think about right now. And we'll see that here in just uh, a little bit. Brother Kenneth has just finished a series on the church and then a, another one on the church covenant. And for the next several weeks, I'm going to be preaching in regards to the, uh, to the New Testament church. I don't know how many weeks, at least three or four, I would suspect, but uh, however long that, that it takes. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts, but I want to remind you, this is not a study of the book of Acts. That would take us uh, the entire year to really thoroughly go through that. And so that's not my purpose. I just want to hit some highlights the next few weeks that relate to our work. You say, well, what is our work? Well, if you've been listening for the last, uh, last nearly year now, you would know that our work is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, who make disciples. That's the work we're involved in. That's what the Lord told them to do, go into all the world and to preach the gospel. He gave them the great commission that they're to preach the gospel in all of the world. And he tells them they're to make disciples. And a disciple is someone who not only is a student, someone who learns, but someone who is an apprentice. In fact, that is a the best definition of that word that I know of. Most of the time we talk about being a disciple and just that he's a learner. He's someone that sits at the feet of the teacher and learns. And, and that's true. 
but he learns with the intent of putting into practice that which he has learned. And that's what we need to be mindful of. And the book of Acts gives us the scriptural standard for the Lord's church. You know, a lot of churches today, they copy other churches because they have a large crowd. I mean, you know, they look at some church over there that's growing and by leaps and bounds, and so they begin to investigate, and, and all, all of a sudden they begin to imitate that because they think, you know, if it'll work over there, it'll work over here. And uh, it doesn't necessarily work there. In fact, just because there's a crowd at the one church that they consider to be a great success doesn't mean they're successfully at all. Let me explain why. When the Lord told Moses to build the tabernacle, over in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 5, he gave him this instruction. He said, make all things according to the pattern. In other words, you're not at liberty to just make the tabernacle whatever size you want it to be. You're not at liberty to use whatever material you want to use. You're not at liberty, you know, to put different articles of what we would call furniture in it. I want you to make everything according to the pattern. There was a reason for that. The reason is because that tabernacle, every article of furniture in it, every material that was used, every dimension, everything in it in some way was a type and a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his person and his work. And we talk about, you know, using flannel graph with children and teaching them. It makes it easier for them to understand. They see it in a picture. And I think that was God's flannel graph, if you please, to teach us about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just as God told Moses to make all things according to the pattern, whenever we think about the Lord's church, His house... His house. Think about it. We're not talking about a building. We're not talking about a denomination. We're talking about His house where He dwells. He speaks of it as being His bride. Boy, that's a close, intimate relationship the church ought to have with the Lord. He describes the church as the body of Christ. You see, the church is not just an organization. It is a living organism. The church is alive in that it is indwelt by the Spirit of God. And any congregation, any group of people that's not indwelt by the Spirit of God is not a true church. Didn't the Lord say, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you? In John chapter 14, he told them that. He said, look, because he knows they're upset and worried, and he said, look, I'm I'm going to go away. He says, I'll come again, but they're wondering, well, what are we going to do while you're gone? And he said, I'm going to give you another comforter. And and let me tell you, they were not getting shortchanged by the fact that the Lord left and the Holy Spirit came. In any way whatsoever, it was essential that the Lord ascend back into glory and that the Holy Spirit come. 
And I'm saying all of that to say this. As a church, we need to be mindful that we have a responsibility to build all things according to the pattern. And you say, well, where's the pattern? The pattern is found here in the book of Acts, for example. That's the, the main place anyway. Can you imagine having the privilege that uh, the apostles had, those early disciples of hearing Jesus, hearing him preach, hearing him teach, and they learn things they've never known before. And think about them watching the miracles and they're following him from place to place. They see his example that he's perfect in every way. And you would think, boy, if anybody is ready to, to do the work, they're ready. You couldn't have a better teacher than that. You couldn't have a better example than that. And yet, when the Lord ascends back into heaven at that particular point, they are not ready for the mission. And that's what we're going to consider in the message today. And, and uh, before you criticize his followers for being distracted, for them having questions they should have known and what have you, you need to understand that every Christian needs exactly what they needed at that moment. There are people that have been saved 10 or 20 times longer than those men when the Lord descended back into heaven. They'd only been following him like three years. Today just happens to be August the 14th, 1966, was the day I trusted Christ as my Savior. That makes it special to me. And maybe there are some of you who have been saved longer than I have. You could be saved ten times longer than these apostles here and still be in the same situation that they were in, unprepared to really effectively serve the Lord. Now maybe you're thinking, well, that might be true of some folks, but it's sure not true of me. I'll tell you what, I attend every service. I teach a class, I sing in the choir, I always give more than my tithe. I even hand out tracts. Some of you could say, well, I can quote a hundred scriptures. I'm even an officer in the church. What more could I possibly need? Well, that's what I'm going to tell you this morning. You need more than that to serve God effectively. The book of Acts tells us about the acts of the Holy Spirit in and through the Lord's church. I know what the title says. I understand that, but understand that other than the word Acts, that title is uh, something that man put in there. This is uh, the book of Acts, and it involves more than the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of that local New Testament church in Jerusalem at that time. And it tells of those that God used in a marvelous way and gave us the example. So turn there to Acts chapter 1. Verse number 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? We already referenced that. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. 
But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, all of a sudden the Lord ascended up into a cloud and was taken away. Two angels appeared and said, You men of Galilee, verse 11, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which ye have seen taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And they returned unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. They went into the upper room, verse 14. They continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brethren. Verse 15 tells us that there was about 120. Chapter 2 and verse 1 says that they were all with one accord in one place. Did you ever think about how miraculous that is? (laughs) A church where every member is in one accord in one place. But notice in verse number 4, which to me is one of the most shocking, important verses in all of the Bible. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues, that is, in other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. I want to speak to you this morning about a Spirit-filled church. How would you describe the ideal church. You know, we use all kinds of descriptive phrases when we speak about a church. We talk about a church being a Baptist church. Sometimes we say it is not just a Baptist church. It's an independent Baptist church. It's a fundamental Baptist church and so forth. And all of that is fine. But when we talk about the kind of church we prefer, such as a friendly church. I've had people say, I'm looking for a friendly church. Others say, well, I'm looking for a growing church. Some might say, well, I'm looking for a soul-winning church, and all of that is well and good. But what would you say is the very best description of what a church ought to be? Well, maybe the first thing comes to my mind is a Christ-centered church. I've preached sermons about a Christ-centered church. I may do it again. A Christ-centered church. But you can't have a Christ-centered church without it being a Spirit-filled church. And that's exactly what we see described here in this picture of the early church. The church didn't start on the day of Pentecost. The church started during the earthly ministry of Christ when he called out that 12 and called them together. And that's when the church was organized. That's why we say that we're not Protestants, we're Baptists. Because Protestants believe that it started on the day of Pentecost and, and they're wrong. The key phrase is mentioned several times in regards to fill with the Spirit. Notice in verse 4, chapter 2. You'll find it in chapter 4 and verse 8 and verse 31, chapter 9, verse 17, chapter 13, verse 9, verse 52. So over and over and over again, 
we find the church being referred to as a spirit-filled church. Now, here in verse 4, he says, they were filled with the Holy Ghost. But what does that mean? And a lot, there's a lot of people confused about what does that mean? They were filled. Well, somebody says that means speaking in tongues. Well, they were speaking in other languages, but by the way, that doesn't mean that's what we do today. That was one of the spiritual gifts, temporary spiritual gifts, that God gave to the early church. You say, why would he do that? Because there were people from all over, Jews from every nation, gathered there on that day, on the day of Pentecost. There are people there of other languages. And the Lord enabled Peter to speak so as to address each one of them. He empowered them to be able to communicate the gospel with all of those people. When we talk about being filled with the Spirit, we're talking about being controlled by the Spirit. And that's obvious because of the way the word filled is used. For example, in Luke chapter number 4, in verse number 28, it tells us here, the city of Nazareth was filled with anger. It's, it's like the atmosphere was, everybody was angry. In Acts chapter 19, we see there the city of Ephesus was filled with confusion. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 3, it says the heart of Ananias was filled by Satan. In John chapter 16, it says Jesus said to his followers, sorrow hath filled your hearts. So when we talk about being filled with the Spirit, we're talking about being under His control. Three times the Bible speaks about the state of being filled with the Spirit. It, it is contrasted and connected to being under the influence of wine. Someone that is inebriated, drunk. They're under the control of alcohol. And the person filled with the Spirit is under the control of God's Spirit. So that's what it means, but how is it manifested? How do we know if a church is a Spirit-filled church or not? You know, surely we look at the Bible and we see this is what God wants the church to be. A Spirit-filled church. That's His ideal. That's a standard. You see, our problem today is we are... We are satisfied with being like an average church. Get caught up in the trap of tradition. This is the way Grandpa did it, and this is the way Daddy did it, and this is the way we're going to keep doing it. They get caught up in the trap of tradition and just go on and on year after year without ever any change taking place. On the other hand, someone sees the church where it's obviously under the control of the Spirit of God and God is doing great things there. And they say, I want to I be a part of a Spirit-filled church. For some people, it's all about they see the size of the crowd. Oh, they got a big crowd over there. They're busting out at the seams. The Spirit of God must be working there. Well, if you're going to use that kind of uh, uh, reasoning, 
I guess you could reason that uh, the church has moved into the football stadiums or the baseball stadiums. They got big crowds. Has nothing to do with God. And let me tell you, there's some so-called churches that really have nothing to do with God. A lot of them right here in Houston, some big ones, in fact. Where if you go there expecting to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're going to be sadly disappointed. If you're going to hear the preacher get up and condemn sin as we are required to do by the word of God, you're going to be disappointed. Others, you know, they think of a spirit-filled church as being impressed by the pastor. Boy, I tell you what, you know, he's a fireball. We just love to hear him preach and so forth. That must be a spirit-filled church. Going through the book of Acts, and I'm going to save you a lot of time, but just giving you what you can find in the book of Acts that tells us what a spirit-filled church is like. It is Christ-centered. We see that in chapter 5 and verse number 42. This is the only time I'm going to stop to read a verse related to that. And he says in verse number 42, And daily in the temple and in every house they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Amen. I mean, that was their focus. That is what, how they expended their time and their energy, preaching Jesus Christ. So it is a Christ-centered church. We could go on and we could prove that it was committed to the disciplines. By that I mean Bible study and prayer and things of that nature. This church there in Jerusalem was committed to those disciplines. It was conformed to the scriptures. It was cooperative in their business. Consecrated in their work. They were considerate of others. Concerned about the lost. Compassionate toward others charitable in their giving, courageous in times of adversity, confident when they were suffering. And Brother Kenneth or I, either one, could spend an hour preaching on any one of those statements that I just made there. And each one deserves serious attention. Let me sum it all up. We look at a list like that that's all taken from the book of Acts and I can honestly say that any church that is not under the Spirit's control is out of control. Any person who is not filled with the Spirit is out of control. I realize that unity is a very important thing, but merely getting a unanimous vote on something doesn't mean we're led by the Spirit of God we can, listen, we can all agree on a matter and still not be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Unity is important. But the most important thing has to do with our attitude and our actions that they are regulated by God Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. Because we make mistakes and He never does. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? We have more than 120 here today. We do every Sunday morning. But can you imagine a church this size, or any church, even if they had 12, any church where you could honestly say that every member is filled with the Spirit? What would that look like? 
Well, I can tell you, Paul tells us that in Galatians chapter number 5. He speaks about the fruit that's singular, not plural, as though they were different things. The fruit of the Spirit. And when a person is literally filled, that is under the control of the Holy Spirit, this is how you know. Number one, the list starts with love. When love is lacking, we're out of control. We're not under the control of the Holy Spirit. The second one is joy. (laughs) When we lack joy in our life, we're not under the control of the Holy Spirit. The joy of the Lord is your strength, the Bible says. We sure got a lot of weak Baptists then because you go to any Baptist church and it's remarkable that there is so little joy in the congregation. Then he says, not only love and joy, but peace. When we're under the control of the Holy Spirit, there's going to be a peace. He said, what kind of peace? Paul says, a peace that passeth all understanding. You can't even comprehend it. It is that peace that the Spirit of God can give you when your whole world is crumbling around you, when everything is falling apart and there seems to be no reason for you to even be on this earth. And yet you have a deep, settled peace in your heart. That's what the Spirit of God does. And where there is no love, no joy, and no peace, We're not being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Then he says next in regards to the fruit of the Spirit, there is long-suffering. You don't see much of that today, do you? We see temper tantrums one after another everywhere you go. You can be in the shopping, shopping mall or in the grocery store or wherever, and somebody's mad about something all of the time. They have no patience with anybody. Then he says gentleness. Some are like a bull in a china shop and claim to be spirit-filled Christians. There's goodness. We could use a lot of that today. And faith. Faith. We need to ask ourselves, are we really controlled by the Spirit of God? And is it evident because we have great faith in God that whatever happens... We know it's all under His control. He either allowed it or He appointed it. It's under His control. And He's going to make some good come out of it. Do we have the faith to actually accept those facts? Then He says meekness. And then He ends with the word temperance. which simply means self-control. When we're under the Spirit's influence, filled with the Spirit, controlled by Him, we'll be able to control ourselves. I've heard people say, well, I I just couldn't help myself. Well, that's probably true. You need to stop trying to help yourself and let God help you. Trust God to help you. And it's whenever we start 
doing those things that, that are contrary to what we know the will of God is, that's when all of a sudden we find ourselves making a mess out of our life. And the only solution is to be filled with the Spirit of God under His control. Think about what a church that would be. Somebody said, well, you know, I attended church last week down at that Lakeway Baptist Church. And boy, I'll tell you what, if ever there was a spirit-filled church, uh, that's it. But my main concern is what does God think about Lakeway Baptist Church? There's no telling what God could do in this church or any church that's being controlled by the Spirit of God. We'd all be amazed. The early church only had 120. Oh, by the way, they didn't have any rapid transit back then, did they? How are you going to spread the Word of God in all of the world? Or how are you going to grow a church when you don't even have a vehicle? How are you going to get the message out? And there's no internet, really. No sound system. No big screens up on the wall. Think about some of those early churches that literally met in caves because they were in danger. They didn't have a nice building to meet in. And they were so successful that the church began to grow by leaps and bounds. And we'll talk about that in another message all of a sudden, he, he tells us the Lord added daily to the church. And on the day of Pentecost, which is the time that we're talking about here, they're gathered there in the upper room. The Spirit of God comes in upon them. They're all under His control. Baptized, you say, well, what does that mean? Baptized with the Holy Spirit. When you're baptized, you're what? You're immersed. You're not sprinkled, you're immersed. That's what baptism means. It has to do with an immersion. They were immersed in the Holy Spirit that day. There was wind and there was fire. God wanted them to know that this is no usual man-made program. They got the message and then they took the message and about 3,000 people were saved that day that Peter preached. 3,000. I've been preaching these 56 years now because I started two months after I got saved. That's when I started. I've never had 100 saved in a service. 3,000? Are you kidding me? Most I ever had saved in one service was 37 or 8, some, 30 something. And that was when Brother Nick Michaelinus was over uh, Austin Avenue Baptist Church as in a revival meeting. I'll never forget it because Brother Nick said, all of these other churches, you know, he had a bigger attendance than all of the rest of the independent churches in the area. And he said, Brother Son, I want you to look at something. I had all these people, they were all lined up there. 
See, I want you to look at something because people time and time and time again have said the only reason our church is growing is because we're going out here busting in all these little kids. And I want you to notice how many adults there are in this. There were more adults than little kids. But 3,000? I mean, that is unbelievable. That's supernatural. And those 120 people literally shook the world for Christ. And you can attribute it all to the fact that they were filled with the Spirit of God. Let me tell you, the only thing that keeps us from being filled with God's Spirit is us. It's not God's fault. It's not like God says, well, you know, I I like them better than you. No. God's ideal for us is to be Spirit-filled. That's why I mentioned a while ago, too many people are satisfied with being like an average church. Average isn't always good. You can be in the cancer ward at the hospital dying and you're average with all of the others there in the hospital that are dying of cancer. You say, oh yeah, but mine's not as bad as theirs. I've got, I got probably a year to live and some of those folks are not going to live in another month or two. You still got cancer. It's still bad. That, you see, that's not normal. And a normal Christian isn't an average Christian. Are you all getting this? And I'll tell you one thing. With God's help, I don't want this to be just an average church. And I've been preaching long enough to know that I cannot make it any better than an average church. I don't have that power. When I got out of the hospital, I, as I've already told you, I devoted my life and ministry to before I die, whenever that is, to do everything in my power to help this church be all that it can be when I'm dead and gone. Now I know I can't do as much as maybe some people want me to do. I can't be every place like I used to. That's why there's not a day goes by that I don't thank God for Brother Kenneth. Like I told him, he's keeping me in the ministry because I would have been forced to to resign and retire if it hadn't been for that. But God knows I'm doing what I can to help in any way that I possibly can because God forbid that we be content to just be an average church and leave a mess like that in the hands of our younger generation. Now maybe you're thinking, well, boy, all that really sounds good. And preacher, I'm all in on that. I want to be a spirit-filled Christian. That's what I want. But what are the means to becoming a spirit-filled Christian? I don't know if you ever noticed or not. But there in Ephesians, whenever the Apostle Paul said, Be ye filled with the Spirit. He doesn't go on and elaborate that this is how how you do it. 
He didn't say if you read, you know, 10 chapters of Bible a day and if you pray for at least an hour and a half every day and if you do this and you do that, you'll be a spirit-filled Christian. No, he doesn't say that at all. You know why? Because they already knew what it takes to be spirit-controlled. They already knew that. And if you read what he wrote over in Romans and in other places, it becomes obvious that it's a matter of us submitting ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 6, verse 13, he sums it up by saying, Yield yourselves unto God. That's exactly the same thought that Paul had in mind whenever he said in Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, uh, the mercies of God, that ye present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. I pr- present yourselves, that is, you let go of the reins and put your life in His hands and allow God, as it were, to control you. That's what being filled with the Spirit is. Amen. By the way, it's not a one-time event like salvation. I'm glad that I can look back to that time whenever I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that He gave me eternal life, a permanent gift that I can can never lose because my trust is in Christ. You know, I've heard people say, well, I I got saved one time, but, uh, but it was years later before I really got saved. They have no idea what they're talking about. What do you mean you got saved, but now you're really saved? What's the difference between being saved and really saved? If you're saved, you're saved. And if you're not saved, you're lost. You don't get saved over and over and over again. Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. But when it comes to this matter of being filled with the Spirit of God, that's something that... We have to surrender ourselves daily unto the Lord. Notice in Acts chapter 5, verse 32. Acts 5, verse 32, Peter says, And we are His witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Spirit, whom God hath given to them that obey Him. You see, it's not just what happened to those others, but it's what could happen to those who obeyed Him that they could be filled with the Spirit of God and they could enjoy those same benefits just as the others did. This is what every Christian needs most. This this is absolutely the key to everything. Education is great. Talent is good. I I wish I had a lot of talent. Money is good. Love of money is not, but money is a good thing. We can have programs that are good programs. We can make plans. We can put forth a lot of effort. We say, well, we want our church to grow. Let's build some more buildings out here and fill them up and Buy more property, and we want to have the largest church in town. The 
If it's not a spirit-filled church, it wouldn't be worth the effort and the expense. More than anything, we need to be spirit-filled Christians. And if we're not, any life that is, that is not a spirit-filled life is out of control and is headed for disaster. You know, the Bible commands us in Galatians chapter, chapter 6, walk in the Spirit, chapter 5. Walk in the Spirit. How do, how do we do that? Well, we do as the Bible commands. But listen, maybe you're here today and you say, Preacher, that's the kind of Christian I want to be. Let me tell you, there's something more attractive to the world out there Something more attractive in seeing people that are authentic. Seeing people that are devoted to what they claim they believe. If we're, if we're going to win the lost, we're not going to win them by compromising the truth. And they, listen, that's why they say, I don't want to go to church. There's too many hypocrites in the church. And they're right. They don't want to see something that's phony, something that's fake. They want, they want to be around people that believe that they have the real thing and they're devoted to it. And the only way anyone can be filled with the Spirit is, first of all, you've got to be born again. The Spirit of God, to be in control of your life, has to first of all be in your life. The Bible says, if any man hath not the Spirit, he is none of his, none, none of God's. You see, salvation is more than what some people refer to as reformation. They're going to change the way they, they live. I had a relative one time that going through a bunch of problems. Started going to church. Had never gone to church before that I know of in his life. Had, had some marital problems and so started going to a church. This is back before I was saved and knew anything about it. And I wonder, well, wonder what made him start going to church. Well, it was because he was about to lose his marriage. Well, everything worked out all right. And when it did, he stopped going to church. He wasn't religious anymore. Had no concern for Christianity anymore. I've had others talk about, you know, um, I'm going to stop this and stop that. And I'm going to start doing, I'm going to start doing the things that, that are good. You can do all, you can quit every bad habit you got. And it'll never get you to heaven. And you can work your fingers to the bone trying to be helpful around the church. And be maybe the most popular person in the church. And you'll die and go to hell unless you've been born again. And you say, well, what is this born again, new birth stuff that you Christians talk about? It's this simple. You're made up of three parts. Body and a soul and a spirit. Your body is the seat of world consciousness. Your five senses, you relate to the world around you. Your soul is that sense of self-consciousness. Your mind, your will, and your emotions. That's your soul. But your spirit, that's the seat of God consciousness. 
And let me tell you, until you've been saved, your spirit, that spirit part of you is dead. By dead, I mean disconnected from God. There's no connection. So just trying to get to heaven by the things you do will never be enough. What you need is life. Spiritual life. And the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, He becomes your Lord and Savior. Why? Because the Bible says the Spirit quickens, which means He makes alive. I didn't change anything to become a Christian. I couldn't change anything and become a Christian, but boy, God sure changed a lot. The moment I put my trust in Him, He started making changes. And if you're here today and you desperately want that kind of Christianity, it starts with you being born again. And until then, let me, let me tell you, you might think you've got things under control, but you don't. If you're unsaved, you are out of control. As Paul put it, they are taken captive by the devil at his will. That's why we wonder why some people do things that are so foolish. And we wonder, why would anybody with a lick of sense, why would they do something like that? Number one, they're blind to the gospel. Number two, they don't have any power over themselves because as the Bible says, they're taken captive by the devil at his will. You're easy prey for Satan. Before the moment that you trust Christ as your Savior and the Spirit of God comes within you, all of a sudden God enables you to do what you could never do on your own. That's why Jesus said, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. And all of that can be yours by trusting Christ. But today, I suspect that nearly everybody here, I'm just guessing, would claim to be a Christian. But the question is, are you a Spirit-filled Christian? Have you ever just said, Lord, we sing that song, I surrender all, baloney. You know, we sing about surrendering all when we know in our heart we're telling a lie. We're singing a lie, and God hears it. If we surrendered all to the Lord, we'd be under the control of the Lord, and we'd live differently than what we do. Be ye filled with the Spirit. Whenever you look at the language of that and the tenses of the language, this is what it literally means. Be ye being filled with the Spirit. In other words, it's something continuous. It's a lifestyle. It's, a, it's life. Be ye being filled with the Spirit. It's not like you get it and you got it and now that's all you ever need. That's why I often preach about needing revival in our heart every day of our life. Nobody else can do it for you. I can't preach good enough to convince you. But I pray to God this morning that if you haven't, that you'll just go to God in prayer and say, Lord, forgive me for being content being just an average, just an average church member. I want to be a spirit-filled Christian. 
And I promise you, if you'll surrender yourself just as God did things that no man could do on the day of Pentecostal. Pentecost. He'll make a difference in your life that'll be so drastic that it'll make an impression on everybody that knows you. It'll change the way they think about you and the way they think about the Lord. What did the Lord say? He said, you shall be my witnesses. And the words we speak don't mean a thing if the life we live doesn't match up with what God says. Will you surrender yourself this morning? Say, Lord, I, I'm, I'm going to take my hands off of my life. I'm going to give you my life like a blank sheet of paper. And Lord, you, you just write on it whatever you want. Whatever you decide, Lord, is good enough for me. I've often said, you know, the hardest prayer to pray is that what we call a simple prayer, you know. And you pray, you know, pray like this. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Here it is. Thy will be done. Oh, the times that people have prayed that and did not want that, did not mean that. And that's the biggest mistake of your life when you don't want what God wants. Because He doesn't make any mistakes. Let's bow our heads together. Our eyes closed in prayer. It might be you want to come down here to what we call an altar and just get on your face before God and say, Lord, I'm so sorry that I've, that I've grieved your Holy Spirit. I've resisted Him controlling my life. I've insisted on doing what I want to do. And now I realize I don't have any right to do that. Maybe you're here today and you've never been saved. All of this is Greek to you, maybe. But deep down in your heart, you know you want something different for your life than what you've got. There's a longing there. Someone described that as a God-shaped blank or a vacuum in your heart. And that, I think that's true of every unsaved person. And that, that vacuum can only be filled by God. He's the only one that can bring the satisfaction that you long for. And it can only happen if you'll trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. I pray that you will while we stand and while we sing this morning you come.